You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I am talking today to uh, Tim Shuey, who is a retired uh, police officer. You were a constable, I believe? Yes, 25 years in the RCMP, 20 of those on traffic, and 10 concurrent with that as a technical collision investigator. Wow. Okay, so a long amount of time dealing with roads and highways and laws. And all the things that go wrong on them. And now that you're retired, I know you've done some writing for various news outlets, but you also run a really popular blog called uh, Drive Smart BC. That's my hobby. I've been at it for quite some time now. And actually, the writing that I did started in the early 1980s for a newspaper in Fort St. John and has just sort of stayed on as a habit since then. Wow. Well, that's great. Do you um, do you find that you sort of run out of ideas of what to write about when it comes to sort of driving safety issues? I smile when people ask me that and say, all I have to do is go for a short drive. <laughs> it's true. Or, you know, open any, any news website. There's always a news story about some driving-related issue, some idiot doing something stupid behind the wheel. And I hear a lot from people, too. Uh, I send my uh, article out each week by email to about 750 people, and I tend to get a few responses. Wow. Good for you. What got you into the writing? How did you get into doing that? Well, the local uh, weekly newspaper in Fort St. John was competing with the Daily and approached me to write, and I did about 300 words a week for them and uh, the RCMP at the time encouraged them they called it a POG programs objectives and goals and it had to be something uh, a little different than your day-to-day work and it would be something that you came up with on your own and got approval for and uh, mine was writing the article and Mm -hmm. I looked at it as an opportunity to explain the right way to do things before we had to go and do something about it. Now, I I think that's a really, brings us to a really interesting issue because you've sort of, now you've been working, you know, running the blog as your hobby and and doing these articles during the time that you were a police officer, but also you worked in policing. So you saw not just the education side of it, but also the enforcement side. Did you think that the education that you were doing through your writing and and other messaging that government would do had an impact on driving behavior? Well, I'd love to think that it did, but I really can't point my finger to anything uh, that that really showed me that it was. So what what would you suggest then? Like, I mean, one of the things that's constantly a topic of discussion for driving and and people's driving behavior and driving laws is how do you create effective laws that people are going to follow and what what should governments be doing? Do you have insight? Well, I think the government is trying to do its best 
with the tools that it has at its disposal. But the, the difficulty that I tend to see is there's a huge me-first attitude out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm important, you're not, I'm in a hurry, get out of my way. And unfortunately, laws don't really change attitudes. Um, you know, years and years and years ago, probably before I started driving, uh, impaired driving might be a good thing to examine because uh, people would have contests to see how much they could drink and drive home and make it okay. <laughs> and now, 50 years later, uh, it's socially unacceptable to get pie-faced and drive home. Yeah. Did you, like, and did you see that culture shift during the time that you were actively policing? Yes. Um, and and it does depend, too, on where you were, because when I started in Fort St. John, uh, the average breath sample that we were bringing in was in the 300s. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, 0.30, I suppose you would call it. And these people weren't just impaired. These people were drunk. Yeah. And then a move to the Okanagan and Penticton in the uh, 1990s, um, the samples were considerably lower than that. And toward the end of my service there, they introduced the uh, roadside screening devices. And uh, now we started to pick up a lot of people that were over 100.10. where we weren't necessarily dealing with them before. And so what, like, that's a really interesting thing that I'd love to hear more about, because when they brought in the approved screening devices, obviously it made it easier for you and other police officers to apprehend people. Did that change the attitudes of police officers about impaired driving? No, I don't think so, because when they first came out... um, we still did the standard criminal impaired driver. And um, I found that for myself, it took me three to four hours to process an impaired driver from uh, the start at the side of the road until I had completed my written report to Crown Council. And then uh, time in court occurred later on down the road. Mm -hmm. So if it were a busy Friday or Saturday night and I did my best to get back out onto the road after the first impaired. Uh, sometimes I could find a second one and do it as well. But it was a busy shift when I did that because you had to pay careful attention and do all of the paperwork and be back out on the road in order to catch that. And it, it was not an easy thing to do. It was the start of the immediate roadside prohibition, I think, that made a big change to what happened on the side of the road. Right. Was then, in in your time, was it more common to see officers sort of handing out the 24-hour and saying, you know, be careful next time? It, it depends on who it was. Mm. Um, on average, you could probably say that. But when you... Uh, new members that had a lot of experience with impaired drivers and what happened when people drove impaired, uh, those were the people that were not liable to just walk away after issuing a 24-hour prohibition because they had experience with all the bad things that happened. Right. 
and weren't about to walk away and leave it because the, the people that did that knew full well when they got behind the wheel that they shouldn't be there and they made the choice to do it anyway. Yeah. And I mean, back in, in the early days before the PPDs, like you said, in Fort St. John, you're bringing in people who are blowing 300. I imagine that when you're pulling them over, it's obvious that they're intoxicated. Oh, it was crazy. Uh, you would watch because you needed some driving evidence, but sometimes you you didn't dare watch because the driving was so bad you were scared that they would hit somebody else in the meantime. Wow. And do, do you attribute that to sort of being like in the gateway to the north, Fort St. John, um, and a different culture in less less urban areas than, you know, in the Okanagan and then ultimately in the lower mainland or, or Victoria, greater Victoria area? Well, I think a lot of that was probably driven by the oil field. Okay. These were people that worked out of town and worked hard for long periods of time, had plenty of money, and then they'd come into town on a weekend and tie one on. Right. Work, work hard, party harder. Yep. Yeah, and I guess you go back to the oil field, you don't necessarily need your license. Um, were you around when they brought in the administrative driving prohibitions, the ADPs? Yes. Okay. How did that, if if it did, how did that change your approach to policing and impaired driving? Well, it really didn't change anything because we were still doing the standard criminal impaired driving investigation. Right. Um, what that did was provided an immediate stop for somebody that was drinking and driving. It wasn't uh, having to wait 6, 8, 10, 12 months down the road to find out what happened to you. Um, you were served the ADP and the driving prohibition took place. So there was a, a more immediate penalty for driving while impaired. Now, I know a lot of officers keep a tally of how many impaireds they've got in their career. Did you ever keep those types of numbers? Well, I had to keep my breathalyzer logbook, of course, but um, uh, I didn't really keep track. I suppose I could go through my notebook and count them all, certainly, <laughs> but uh, uh, it was the year that they first issued an approved screening device to me where uh, I went out and did 82 criminal impaired driving investigations in a one-year period. Wow. That's like more than one a week. Oh, yes. And and it was it was hard work. You had to go and, and look carefully and, and deal with it. And unfortunately, it wasn't hard to find them. No. Now, since they brought in IRPs, obviously it's making it a lot easier for police officers to take uh, drivers off the road immediately and to and to address sort of the immediate problem. Um, do you see any pitfalls with the IRP scheme as far as policing is concerned? That's a difficult question for me to answer because that came in after I had quit policing. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any experience with what might be happening from direct observation. But uh, my concern, from what I know, might be it's the easy way out. <laughs> and it's, it's appropriate, perhaps, for a first-time impaired driver. But for someone that's already done it before, the criminal impaired is probably an appropriate way to go. And, and there's just 
maybe a little bit too much enticement to just issue the IRP, be done with your paperwork at the side of the road in 30 minutes, and carry on. Yeah, I mean, I see that in a lot of files I get. I see IRPs issued to people who are grossly intoxicated or issued in circumstances of accidents with injuries where you're thinking this is a case that should definitely be a a criminal charge. Somebody's injured. There needs to be that type of of oversight, um, particularly because of the way that ICBC rolls, um, uh, rolls into an impaired investigation. And... I think there's also a huge amount of de-skilling of police because they don't get cross-examined. It was a complicated business, and it was something that I didn't look forward to, uh, going to court to testify for an impaired driving case, because you had to know a lot of material, and you had to be able to present all of that material without error to the court mm-hmm. and stand up under cross-examination by some quite skillful lawyers. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's a real disservice to policing that uh, a lot of young officers now have never had that experience. Because I, the way I look at an impaired investigation is it's not just your opportunity as a police officer to be cross-examined on what happened in that case. It's also your opportunity to be cross-examined on your implementation of charter rights, your expression of, of your grounds for doing things. And that's going to affect every type of investigation you do. The type of information that you cross, uh, that you, you testify about as a police officer in an impaired case is the same type of information that you would be testifying about in other, you know, more conventionally criminal uh, type cases like, you know, drug trafficking or sex assaults. And it builds a really good foundation for being able to do that well. You had to be careful, though, because as I uh, moved along in my service, I sometimes found myself walking up to the side of a vehicle and looking inside and saying, oh, I got an impaired driver here. Now, in order to get this through court, Let's get the notebook out. Let's ask all the questions. I, you know, I was I was filling in between the lines, but I, I knew from experience that I had an impaired driver and yeah. that the driver was going to blow over. But I had to make sure that I gathered everything necessary to prosecute properly. But that's the same as you would like if you were investigating a grow-up and you know that Jimmy, you know, pot dealer has a bunch of marijuana plants in his basement. You know it, but you need the foundation to get your warrant for it. It's teaching you those same skills in a way that police officers are more likely to encounter on a frequent basis. And I once had a provincial court judge remark to me that he felt sorry for me (laughs) because I do my job while the government is busy changing the goalposts. Oh, yeah. By modifying the laws. Yeah, and and I feel bad for the police officers. You know, I always joke with Paul um, that, uh, that it you know, how hard is it? You only have to properly form your suspicion, then articulate that in court, make a demand as, uh, forthwith, and then after you administer the ASD properly, taking into account all of the possibilities of things that can go wrong, express how you administered the test and relied on the result, then you need to uh, read charter rights and warnings uh, immediately, read a breath demand as soon as practicable, incorporate all 
all of the elements of the demand, then transport them back to the detachment as soon as practicable. Make sure there's a QT there. Make sure you implement 10B properly. Uh, have an observation period that's not too long but not too short. Uh, make sure you're constantly watching the person for 15 minutes while also trying to get information out of them. Write it down in your notebook so there's a good record of it. Present them to the instrument. Get the sample. Make sure nothing goes wrong in getting the sample. And then do that a second time and then release them quickly because you can't keep them too long after the samples are done. How hard is that? You sound like you maybe had a little bit of experience with this. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a few impaired trials under my belt, but I, I get to be in the comfortable position of defense counsel picking apart everything you do. And, you know, really when it, it came down to it, a lot of what I learned was trial by fire. Yeah. And you had to go into court, you had to do what you needed to do, and you had to pay attention because if there were any problems, you had to cover them off next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I well, started out as a, as an auxiliary officer. Oh, really? And within just a few weeks of starting, we stopped an impaired driver. And the constable that I was working with said, you go around to the other side of the car and you watch the passenger. So true to form, I went around to the other side of the car and I paid attention for all I was worth. A passenger wasn't going to do anything that I didn't see. And I got subpoenaed to the trial for the impaired driver. Mm-hmm. And the defense lawyer got up and said, did you see this? No. Did you see that? No. Did you hear this? No. And, and after a little bit of this, the judge stopped the defense lawyer and said, you may as well stop now. You're almost to the point where you can prove that he wasn't even there. <laughs> and I was embarrassed. The next time that happened, I had some answers. Mm-hmm. You watched both things. Exactly. But it was probably a good learning experience to have at the beginning of your career because you used that in future investigations, in all types of investigations, not just your traffic ones. Well, I suppose in a way I was lucky because at that point it really wasn't critical because I was inexperienced and the court knew it and the court wasn't expecting a lot from me. Right. But I got the experience so that when it came time for something that really did matter, I was further ahead than I would have been otherwise. Yeah, and so that, I, I imagine, you know, a, a time when you might be critical would have been when you were working in, you know, dealing with the collision stuff. Well, that's an entirely different matter. That was really something because you would qualify as an expert, uh, expert witness and get to give opinion evidence. And that was really difficult because I had spent 15 years knowing that you had to present what you saw, what you heard, what you can hold up and show, but you can't do anything other than that. And now all of a sudden, here you were saying, well, you know, based on those tire marks and this coefficient of friction for the road surface and this super elevation, here is the speed that the driver was driving in pre-crash. And that I found quite difficult until I got a little bit more used to it. Do you think you were more careful in giving your opinion evidence as a result of the experiences you had as, as a traffic member? Well, certainly. And, and that, and you realized how important it was. 
you know that there was no way that I was going to an exp- going to express an opinion that I wasn't confident of. Yeah. And, you know, when you're expressing an opinion in the context of collision reconstruction and collision evidence, you're doing that only in serious trials. It's, you know, not the guy who runs into a lamp standard and walks away from the accident and no one's injured. You're not called out for that. No, but it put a a whole different face on investigating those, too. Because after I'd had my course where I could make a speed estimation from a tire mark, I had... uh, T-bone collision in an intersection, and uh, I talked to the driver responsible and said, how fast were you going before this all happened? (laughs) Oh, 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 the speed limit, no more than 50, certainly. So I went and got my measuring tape out and measured and came back and sat down and calculated. And I said, you know, my calculations show you somewhere between 65 and 70 kilometers an hour. Was he like, that's complete bullshit? What are you What are you talking about? No, he kind of hung his head and said, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been, like, dumbfounded standing at the roadside for somebody to, you know, get out measuring tape and start measuring tire marks. Well, it, it, it certainly put a different face on investigation because now you weren't relying on he said, she said, and no mm-hmm. witnesses present. You could actually do something to establish a little more about what happened and decide which, if any of them, you could pay a little more attention to. Did you did you find it easy to turn off sort of the, I guess, the, the, the gross stuff, the, you know, the body parts and, and all of that? Like, I know, like, when I look at a file and I get these pictures of these, you know, devastating accidents and, and you know, there's severely injured people and photos of injuries or, you know, worst case scenario, a photo of a deceased person. Um, you know, it, it, it's, I can turn that off in my brain and I can go, that's just, you know, that's that. I got to look here for, you know, the defenses for my client. Were you able to turn off that and look, you know, just here's the science that's going into how this accident happened? Well, I was usually lucky because when I investigated the collision as an analyst, uh, usually all the people that were hurt were gone. Right. And a good portion of the time, uh, the bodies might have been removed as well. So I was left with a more or less a scientific investigation to conduct, and it wasn't too bad. And if the bodies were still there, well, you knew that they didn't hurt anymore. That's true. So... You know, it was tough to take, especially when there were children involved. But, uh, yeah, you, you sort of turn it off and, and carry on, and it really comes back to bother you afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I found myself driving around sometimes on patrol and saying, oh, yeah, did a fatal here, yeah, did a double fatal here. Well, that's not the right way to look at the world. No, no, there's a really, like, I think, you know, both lawyers and and police end up suffering from the real weird, jaded way of of looking at things, the way that you um, turn off your emotions to things that would devastate uh, lots of people, and you just do your job, and then afterwards you reflect about your job rather than the human cost. it's, It's an interesting outlook, because after a while... You see all the things that go wrong, and then you stop somebody, 
and say, hey, you've got no taillights. And they say, yeah, well, I'm almost home, so what? Well, I can point you to a fatal collision that resulted because somebody had no taillights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this this person genuinely doesn't see a problem with it. And I was at the complete opposite end of the spectrum where I did see something significantly wrong with it, possibly. So now what do you do? You know, if if you write them a ticket, you're halfway. If you write them a ticket and take them off the road until they get taillights running again, now you're starting to be someone that's not really nice to have around. And they remember you for <laughs> they these things. They do, and then they show up to traffic, or, or they call their defense lawyer, and they, they talk about what a, what a jerk you are. Well, you know, I never heard back anything like that through a defense lawyer. Oh, yeah, we, we, I, don't, we don't tell you that they say that. <laughs> no, I'm sure they do. But uh, traffic court... Yeah, a lot of times people are there saying, it's not my fault. I didn't deserve this. The officer's picking on me. I didn't like the way he talked to me at the side of the road. And I want you to do something about it. And they really have no idea that the justice in the traffic court doesn't really have any avenue to do anything about that. And half the time doesn't really care to, because if you had no taillights and you were driving with no taillights, they're justified in writing you a ticket and taking you off the road for a defective vehicle. Yeah, and of course they can adjust the penalty to suit the circumstances, and I've never really had an issue with that. Uh, It's quite interesting. That uh, traffic court I found to be a challenge because I got to play prosecutor. When we were in the Okanagan, they started to having police prosecute their own traffic tickets. And we were in front of the Judicial Justice of the Peace instead of the Provincial Court Judge. And it actually made it interesting for me because generally everybody was quite happy to let me prosecute their tickets too. So I didn't have to sit there in the gallery and wait my turn. Uh, The senior traffic member there would essentially run the traffic court. Well, that's nice. I mean, I've been to Nanaimo, they do it that way, and it it can be a lot more efficient. Um, But in the traffic courts in the Lower Mainland here, it's just the each officer, and they're sort of like, you go in and everybody's unsure about who's going to call what first, and it's a little bit hectic sometimes. Yeah, it was a little difficult because there was mistrust there because people didn't understand how the system worked. Mm -hmm. But we would call the list. And we would explain to people that, you know, if, if you're here to say, I didn't do this, that's fine, we'll have a trial. And if you're willing to say, yes, I did this, but I think the penalty is inappropriate, then we'll get you up first and get that out of the way and then go on to the trials. And you could see wheels turning, but mm, a lot of times they would plead not guilty anyway, just because. Yeah. Did you, so before they they made that switch, were they having Crown Counsel prosecute traffic tickets and you guys would come as witnesses, or how did they deal with it? That's exactly how they dealt with oh it. Oh, my God. <laughs> the provincial court was not happy to see it. No. I had a motorcycle with no muffler, and I gave all of the necessary evidence, I thought, for a conviction, and the judge found him not guilty. 
And we ended up talking to each other in the hallway after court that day. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the conversation, but I I probably would have asked uh, why he decided to find him not guilty. And the judge looked me right in the face and said, it's not important. I have more important things to do in my traffic court or in my courtroom than deal with traffic tickets like that. Yeah, fair enough. And he does. But unfortunately, at the time, that was the only avenue open. And really, he needed to treat it the same way that he treated everything else with fair deliberation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. He definitely needed to treat it with fair deliberation. But it's, you know, maybe a good shift to take traffic tickets out of provincial court just to free up the time of a judge and a prosecutor, particularly with the big concerns that we have even now about delays in court. And if you're a new constable prosecuting a traffic ticket for the first time, you face a long uphill battle. Yes. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> They're the easiest to talk about out of the tickets when, when I go to court because they, uh, they, they'd rather let it go than, uh, than have to go through cross-examination from a defense lawyer. And that's where I learned. Yep. And, and that's the thing, right? But they, but they don't know that. I, I, I see such a huge problem about taking as many things as possible out of the courts, which, which is the current legal trend, and eliminating that opportunity to learn. It compromises other investigations. It has consequences in more serious cases. And if you don't learn, you're going to keep doing the same thing. Yep. And, you know, the, the thing I hate seeing most as a member of the public, I mean, the thing I like seeing the most as defense counsel, but I hate seeing it most as a member of the public, is a serious collision, a fatal or an injury that is, you know, completely botched because the officer doesn't know how to conduct an impaired driving investigation. And if you really want to look at it, that's a homicide. It really shouldn't be one or two traffic constables looking after things. It should be a major investigation team dealing with it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it a homicide in the in the legal sense of the word, but I I agree with you that to, to you know to throw a couple traffic members onto a fatal impaired when there's so much that goes into it, and you even see like I don't know if you remember the Carol Burner case, but you know a, a um, an undercover officer posing as her friend, like these types of investigative tactics being something that are a very real um, possibility in those cases and could create, as it did in Miss Burner's case, much stronger evidence for the prosecution. But they're not done because you've got an already overburdened traffic unit dealing with this investigation it's well it's experience i'm glad i'm retired to be honest (laughs) but uh, i've i've had cases that stick with me Uh, i went to a two vehicle head-on collision and uh, i was the traffic person responsible and i had one general duty constable working with me and partway through the the constable came over and and motion to one of the vehicles and said I smell liquor in there so I went over and I looked the fire department still hadn't got the driver out and uh, here's a broken liquor bottle on the passenger floor Mm -hmm. so certainly that's where the odor of liquor came from but when they loaded her into the ambulance 
my mistake was not asking permission to go in and smelling myself. I asked the paramedic to just lean down and take a sniff of this lady's breath and see if he smelled liquor or not. And he did and came back and shook his head no. So at that point, because things were busy and I had other things to do uh, that were as pressing, uh, I dealt with that as quickly as I could and moved on. The following morning, I had a delegation of neighbors in the detachment wanting to talk to me. This woman is an alcoholic. She is never sober. How come she didn't get caught for impaired driving last night when she caused that collision? So I called the hospital. I said, did you take blood when she was admitted? Did you do a blood alcohol analysis on it? And they said, yes. So uh, I had never done it before, but I obtained a search warrant mm -hmm. to get the blood results. And the blood results came back with a significant level of impairment. So I put together a report to Crown Council, forwarded it, and they would not accept it for prosecution. It was too big an inconvenience. Inconvenience is not the right word. It was uh, uh, too big an imposition on the accused charter rights. There's, there's the description. And I thought, wow, what about the imposition that that woman caused on the life of the person in the other vehicle? And I, I had trouble balancing that out myself. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, it's a lot of people comment to me, um, you know, you probably see on Twitter, uh, the, the types of things people say on Twitter, like you put drunks back on the road, you put people back out there to kill people. Um, and it's really hard to do your job, whatever side you're on. It's really hard to do your job when you're thinking about the consequences of either when you, when you don't, you know, get everything exactly right as a police officer, you rely on information from somebody else who doesn't give you accurate information, or when you're a lawyer and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you, you know that there are consequences for winning a case just like there are consequences for losing a case. Well, we all choose the jobs we do because we feel we're doing it the way we should be doing it. But you you do have to take into account that the prosecutor prosecutes and the defense defends, and they're the checks and balances in the system. And, and the best that I could do as an investigator was gather and present the evidence. What, and if, what? if I was successful... The prosecution would be successful, and if I wasn't, well, it was up to me to try harder next time. What do you say to those officers who think of defense counsel as the enemy? I mean, maybe you were one, I don't know. <laughs> no, I understood what they were doing and why. Um, I found it difficult to deal with sometimes, um, mostly because of the trouble I had within myself mm -hmm. dealing with the outcome. Um, uh, they knew how to play the game. And play the game is probably not a good expression to use, but, but the, they were talented prosecutors in their own way. And 
when I got on the stand, it, it was up to me to listen to the question, formulate an answer, and then get the answer out completely into the court. And quite often they interrupt and take off in a different direction or do something to disrupt your train of thought and you just didn't get out what you needed to get out. And what you had to learn from that was you ignored the second question and you just didn't deal with it until you'd finished with the first one. But it, it was a an adversarial process that if the uh, defense lawyer was good was very difficult to uh, to counter yeah do you have advice for young police officers out there who want to get into traffic <laughs> think twice <laughs> <laughs> why why think twice well it's like anything else uh, I enjoyed traffic because of the freedom that it gave me. So I was pretty much a one-man team. I mm -hmm. got into my car at the start of the shift, and I went out and directed myself virtually to do something for the day unless the supervisor had um, other intentions, which didn't happen all that often. And and it was up to me to go out and try and, and make a difference on my own. And that latitude is not easily available in other areas of police work. But like anything else, you you give up nights and weekends and you see ugly things. And, mm -hmm. um, it, it's funny. I've said to people in past, you know, fight with somebody, arrest them, handcuff them throw them in the police car, jam them into a jail cell, send them to court, see them put away, and that's the price of doing business. But write somebody a traffic ticket, and it's like you called their mother an ugly name. <laughs> it's true. I don't know if you if you listened to the uh, episode of, of the podcast with um, Grant Gokatru, uh, but there's a great clip with him uh, being called a number of ugly names by a person he's issuing a ticket to and uh, his his reaction. I imagine you must have been much the same way. Just like, that's fine. You're going to do that. You keep talking. I'm issuing you this ticket. And like one supervisor said, God wouldn't have made traffic tickets with three spaces on them if he didn't mean for you to fill them up. <laughs> Yeah, the the uh, the old the old six box I hear about a lot. Uh, two two tickets all full. <laughs> it's hard it's... to do that. It really is. When I was faced with that, I usually just dealt with it the way that I had intended to deal with it when I when I went up there, because the court didn't necessarily see that as an appropriate response to being harassed. And uh, sometimes the justice would subtly intimate that maybe you should have just stuck with the one. <laughs> but uh, you just had to realize that this person would be there again tomorrow. And with an attitude like that, probably you get to deal with them again. Yep. And they don't necessarily learn. 
All right, my last question for you. It's a big one, and I, I suspect I know your answer. Where do you stand on random breath testing? not really got a good answer to that question. Oh, I'm surprised. Well, on one hand, I've got nothing to worry about, because if I drink something, I know how to deal with it. So mm -hmm. I, I either don't drive, or I wait the appropriate period of time, and then drive. So if somebody randomly tests me, I have nothing to fear. But like anything else, when the police deal with something, it's an intrusion into your private life. And I never took that intrusion lightly. Um, I, I wonder, honestly, how many impaired drivers I missed because I wasn't able to detect it with my nose. But once I had the screening device and a few investigative tools. I'd like to think that I found what I needed to find and didn't find things that weren't consequential. So I'm happy with the reasonable suspicion myself. Yeah. I think. And it's really not that hard, I, I think. You know, either you find it with your nose or you use your training and you engage the person in some questioning. And I think that's probably because when this came, I already had a number of years of experience dealing with criminal code impaired driving offenses. So I was well versed in what the court wanted to see, and I had a lot of experience in detecting drivers under the influence of alcohol. So when somebody rolled up to a, a road check or I stopped somebody for uh, an offense, I already had a good basis to work with and you could look at them and and you would be able to easily develop a reasonable suspicion but if all you've ever done is is walked up and said oh you had anything to drink oh here I need a sample you maybe can't do that as well mm-hmm okay so you're on the fence about random testing can I say that yeah, I think that would be a, a reasonable assumption. Okay. Well, I'm I, I'm surprised because I thought you would have been sort of all for it because it made policing easier and also it's a you know a big public safety um, a big public safety thing. Very articulate. Well, <laughs> I well that that's sort of where I I stuck that. I wonder how many I missed that I should have caught in there, but uh, we'll never know. Yeah. You, you can never count things that didn't happen. Um, you hope you make a difference and you hope you do it right, but I, I'm not entirely certain that it's necessary to be able to march up to the side of a vehicle and on what essentially becomes a whim testing somebody. I, I, I personally prefer a reason to do it. Yeah, and you can't catch them all. You're not gonna. You have to live with that. There. That was my last supervisor before I retired. Somebody was complaining about getting a ticket. And he says, well, he says, you ever go fishing? 
The guy says, yeah. He says, you ever catch all the fish? The guy <laughs> says, no. Well, there you go. <laughs> you got caught because you were here, and we can't catch everybody else because you don't catch everybody else. You can only deal with one at a time. Yep. Well. So now I just bide my time uh, with my Drive Smart BC website, and I'm happy to discuss things with people, and it's quite interesting what you get. So how can how can people contact you? What's your what's your web address? I'm going to make you say it for people so they can type it into their computers. It's drivesmartbc.ca. Very easy. And you're um, on Twitter? I am, at drivesmartbc. And don't mistake me for ICBC or the provincial government, because <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, and they won't respond to tweets, so you you can't at them. But you can at Tim. Yes, and and I do my best to answer. But a lot of people do mistake me for either ICBC or the provincial government. I get a lot <laughs> of irate emails saying, "You need to do something about this, and this is what I think you should do, and you should do it right now." Do you respond to those? Do you direct oh, sure. them? Oh, well, that's nice of you. <laughs> I would just delete them. <laughs> well, they're they're frustrated people. Yep, very. And um. What does it cost me to spend 30 seconds to type, sorry, DriveSmartBC is my hobby, and I don't work for ICBC or the government, and and if you're interested, you search, you'll find an answer. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me um, on the podcast and for offering your insight. This was a really interesting discussion. Um, not what I had intended, but a really interesting discussion. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, I'm pleased. I thank you very much for the opportunity, and perhaps one day we can do it again. I hope so. Uh, so just for everybody out there listening, that was Tim Shuey at the Drive Smart BC blog, and if you want to get in touch with him, he gave his website, drivesmartbc.ca, or on Twitter, at drivesmartbc. And if you want to reach me uh, for more information about driving law, you can reach me at uh, vancouvercriminallaw.com or on Twitter, at irplawyer. And next week, we'll be back with our cars and animals in driving podcast.